Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Having looked at what the theory of evolution teaches last time, today we're going to think through how well evolution fits with the Bible. And then next week we'll consider scientific objections to evolution. Our teacher, Will Barlow, covers two main scriptural objections that young earth creationists bring up against evolution before exploring three more issues that arise from the perspective of old earth creationism. Here now is episode 470, part 10 of our scripture and science class, Biblical Objections to Evolution, with Will Barlow. Well, welcome back to Scripture and Science. We're in session 10, and we're going to talk about Genesis 1 and evolution. So last session, we talked about the evidence for evolution. And now what we're going to do is transition a little bit, and we're going to evaluate uh, the claims of evolution in light of Genesis 1. So what does the Bible say about evolution, if anything? That's going to be the question that we're going to try to address in this session. Here's a roadmap of what we're going to do in this session. I want to review a little bit about evolution, and then we're going to talk about young earth creationism and evolution. We're going to talk about old earth creation and evolution, and then we're going to talk about non-literal views in evolution. And what we're going to see is that the approaches are different across those lines. Just to give a brief review of evolution, we talked about four major misconceptions about the theory of evolution that some Christians uh, or theists have. And the first one is, it's just a theory. And what we saw was that the word theory used in the scientific context uh, means more than what it might mean in our vernacular or our common lingo. And so theory means, look, as of right now, it's the best explanation for the scientific evidence. And that's, I think, a very true statement about evolution. It's the, it's the currently accepted scientific model, how we reconcile all these different bits of evidence from the fossils all the way up to the evidence from biochemistry. Misconception number two, it means to explain how life began. Evolution starts, the theory formally starts when life starts. They don't try to explain how life began. As we evaluate the theory of evolution, we are going to talk about abiogenesis a little bit, because I think it's important. It's an important question uh, to ask. It's an important question to, to consider, especially in the context of what Genesis 1 has to say about the beginning of life. Uh, misconception number three was evolution says that humans evolved from apes. Uh, we saw instead that the tree of life shows branches off of them. And so the current theory of evolution says that we evolved from a similar ancestor as modern apes. Not that we evolved from a gorilla, for example, or something like that. Misconception number four is that evolution is a progression from simpler organisms to more complex organisms. And again, from a macro view, looking across the whole history of living beings, it is true. We went from a small single-celled organism to the diversity of life that we see today. So in a macro sense, I think we can say that that's not a misconception of evolution. But what evolution would say about comparing modern animals and modern plants with one another is instead that the current forms, they're evolved to be the most sustainable for this particular 
habitat at this particular time. They're the, just the best competitors, you could say, at this time. And that's what evolution would say about those things. Uh, just to review a couple of things we talked about, we talked about that thought experiment with the animal that I named Tom and how over time, when the population got split into two distinct populations, that random mutations acting in different environments could lead to different outcomes. Just like what we see with modern dog breeding, for example, except a naturalistic random version of that. We talked about successful predictions of evolution, like DNA, how DNA looks. It looks like things have sort of slowly built over time and a lot of the genetic material is the same across all living creatures. We also talked about the evidence from microevolution, uh, like dog breeding, for example, that do lend some credence to the theory. The last thing that we talked about is what about the evolution of man? And for atheists like Richard Dawkins, that's a slam dunk. Of course, he doesn't believe in God. He has to have a naturalistic explanation. For him, evolution explains the origins of mankind. But we also talked about Francis Collins and his book, The Language of God. And we talked about how Francis Collins also believes that humans evolved. And he is a Christian and has a very strong commitment to the God of the Bible. He gave evidence from biochemistry, from our genome, and comparing our genome with uh, rats and with different monkeys and things like that. And so that's where we left the theory of evolution. We left the theory of evolution with sort of a scientific understanding of how they build it up, how scientists think about it, and why they believe that it's the best theory that explains this evidence. And so in this particular session, we're going to focus on the scriptural side of it, in the next session, we're going to talk about the scientific side of it, because I think there are interesting scientific questions that we can ask about evolution. So we're just going to focus on scripture in this particular session. So as we start addressing this, we're going to talk about young earth creationism and evolution. So how does young earth creationism view evolution? The short answer they don't like it at all. <laughs> they completely reject evolution and, and basically everything it stands for. And young earth creationists will make both scriptural and scientific arguments to defend their position. Now, we're going to focus on the scriptural arguments for this session, like I said before. So there are three major scriptural objections that young earth creationists make. Now, I'm going to start with this first one, and it's about the existence of a literal atom. So here's the first one. Adam and Eve are no longer the first humans. I'm reading from an article here from the Answers in Genesis website on evolution. Adam and Eve are no longer the first humans, and original sin goes out the window. This does irreparable damage to the biblical redemption narrative. The Bible says that death came into the world because of man's sin, Romans 5.12, and that all of creation labors under a curse because of sin, Romans 8.22. Scripture also says that Christ is the last Adam, come to redeem us from the sin brought into the world through the first man, Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 45. Continuing the quote here, if Adam were a mythical figure, which is what evolution demands, even in a Christianized form, the entire parallel between the two Adams and the kinsman redeemer concept is destroyed. By advocating evolution, theistic evolutionists are undermining the very tenets of Christianity. So these are pretty strong words from the young earth creationists here. But I think that there, there's an interesting point to be made here. 
that if we believe in evolution, then that makes it difficult to believe. You know, you wouldn't have a literal Adam and Eve, basically. You would have Adam and Eve being a, a parable or some sort of, they would say that the story is still true in some sense, but it would be hard for you to have a literal Adam and Eve. There might be a way to salvage this a little bit under a theistic evolutionary perspective by saying something like, there were other humans there on the planet when Adam and Eve were specially created and that the focus of the Genesis passage is only on that part of the world, you know, Israel and the land and st stuff like that. So maybe we could salvage something like that. But as we're going to find in the in future in the session, most old earth creationists are actually going to agree with the young earth creationists on this specific objection. Most old earth creationists will also reject evolution, but they'll do it for this reason only. And we're going to get to the other two objections here in a second. So that's a little bit about Adam. And so Adam, I think, is the major point of contention between can we believe in evolution or can we believe in evolution up to a certain point? Adam is sort of the sticking point in all of that in terms of what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1. So I think Adam's sort of the focal point, Adam and Eve. These other two objections that young earth creationists make are actually not necessarily evolution specific, although they're in the same article. They're actually more focused on old earth, that the universe on the earth is, is young. They're more young earth sort of views instead of old earth. So here are two more objections scripturally to the idea of an old, old earth, and that affects, obviously affects evolution because evolution doesn't work with a short time frame, at least not in the scientific form. So here's the objection number two that they make, which is Adam and Eve must have existed from the beginning of creation. So here's what they say in the article. It says, Jesus, when explaining marriage to the Sadducees, referred to Adam and Eve as existing from the beginning of creation, Mark 10:6. According to those who accept millions of years, Adam and Eve only existed after billions and millions of years of death. This makes Jesus either ignorant or a liar. So we're going to get into how we would respond to this in a little bit. But just to comment on this again, the idea that Adam and Eve must have existed from the beginning of creation, this does not really focus on evolution as much as it does an old earth or an old universe. That's sort of the objection that they're making here. But it does impact, like I said, evolution. If we don't have billions and millions of years for life forms to develop slowly over time, then the modern scientific theory of evolution goes out the window. That's why this particular objection is in this particular article. And, and this is an objection that old earthers, old earth creationists will um, refute. The final scripture objection is God must have called death in the fossil record very good. In other words, we get to the end of the Genesis account, Genesis 1, and God says, everything's very good. And a young earth creationist will say, well, that means that God is talking about all these dead dinosaurs, you know, all this death and destruction, decay that's in the fossil record, that God is pronouncing that to be very good. So here's the quote. It says, further, when God finished his creation, he called everything very good, Genesis 131. In order for the millions of years to be true, God would have to be calling the fossil record, which records disease, death, violence, and suffering, very good. That is inconsistent with the character of God revealed throughout the rest of Scripture. So on one hand, I do want to commend young earth creationists for thinking about the character of God here in Genesis 1. I think that's a, a good thing to bring to the table. 
we're going to ask some sort of cross-examination questions here in a little bit of these objections. So now I want to talk a little bit, I want to step back. Before we answer these three specific objections, I want to take a step back and actually read a little bit about what God says in Genesis 1 about man. Because like I said, I think the creation of man as described in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and then uh, the secondary account in Genesis 2, that gives us some, some scriptural boundaries that we can think about. And we can ask the question, can evolution fit with this or not? And so in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. For the moment, I think it suffices to say that nothing in Genesis 1 or 2 says how God did this, really, from a scientific perspective. So how God created man, or for that matter, how God created any other plant or animal. And so what I'm suggesting here is, is that the Bible doesn't give us the mechanism, especially it's like a scientific mechanism, to explain how God created man. You have the creation out of the dust language that comes uh, from Genesis 2, which makes us think that it is a special creation process. But there are ways to take that figuratively and not do serious damage to the text. So I just want to point out that I don't think evolution necessarily gets cut out entirely by the language here in Genesis 1, except for the possibility of the special creation of humans. So I think that is, that is the sticking point. In other words, we could believe in evolution in the rest of the passage, I believe, with plants and animals and all that stuff. We could believe in evolution all the way there from a scriptural perspective. The Bible doesn't say how God did it, and it doesn't, definitely doesn't do it in a modern scientific way. So now let's start answering some of these objections made by young earth creationists. The first objection, again, was no literal Adam and Eve. So what's going to happen with all these different views is essentially every view is going to agree with the young earth creationists. Uh, the day age, for example, they can fit in a lot of evolutionary evidence because each day is a longer period of time and you could certainly fit evolution into those longer days. But interestingly enough, almost every day age proponent, they don't believe in evolution. Not one that I've read. They're, but I think it could be consistent with day age except for the special creation of humanity that we talked about, that we read about in Genesis 2. In, when you talk about the gap, for example, this whole account, Genesis 1, is a reconstitution of life. So you could absolutely hold to evolution in the gap period. But most gap theorists, as I've read them, don't necessarily believe in evolution, even during the gap. They have scientific questions that they ask about evolution, even in the gap. But there's no scriptural problem for people that hold to the gap. Uh, the, the science and the scripture can fit entirely together. Evolution could have happened in the gap. That could have been the mechanism that God used to get us all the way to the event that happened in the recent history and led to the reconstitution of life. But So gap theorists will also say that Genesis 1 and 2 describe the special creation of humans, as well as the reconstitution of all other plant and animal life. Walton will say, and, and the non-literal people will say, 
it's no big deal. <laughs> They'll shrug their shoulders and say, no big deal. It doesn't matter. The ancients wouldn't have thought about this problem. There are old church fathers who took a non-literal view on Adam and Eve long before the theory of evolution existed or the idea of an old universe or old earth existed. And there are church fathers that read Genesis 1 as a parable or as, as a figure of speech or something figuratively. And so, but, but I, would, I would caveat that by saying those same church fathers took large sections of scripture uh, figuratively. And so we, we can take that for what it is, I guess, with a grain of salt. All right, what about these other two objections about old earth, old universe kind of objections? Objection two is Adam and Eve existed from the beginning of cre creation. If you go back and read this section, if you go back and read Mark or read the parallel accounts in, in other Gospels, what you're going to see is that Jesus is talking about marriage. So when did marriage begin? Marriage began with Adam and Eve. So in this context, even though it says beginning of creation, the context demands that it's probably talking more about the institution of marriage than the physical creation of everything. Okay? So... I, I do like the fact that they're thinking about how do we fit the scripture together, but I think that this objection is a little bit overblown. I don't think that, that Mark 10 uh, disproves an old universe or an old earth. I think objection three is similar when it says God called death and the fossil record very good. Remember, we talked about in session two, the background of the original audience of the people who would have been the, the initial listeners and readers of Genesis. Did they know anything about the fossil record? No. So this is sort of like a non sequitur. This argument doesn't really follow from a reading of the text. There's nothing in the text that mentions the fossil record. There's no way to think that the original listeners would have had that in their mindset or their frame of reference. So I don't think we have to assume knowledge of it when we go to Genesis 1 and say, hey, he has to be talking about the fossil record being very good. I don't think that that's the case at all. In fact, I think we can make a much stronger case that we should exclude the fossil record uh, from God saying that what he does in Genesis 1 is very good. He's talking about the stuff that he just did and just accomplished. Again, the context has to take priority in these types of conversations. Just to give an overview, again, old earth creation and evolution. Most old earth views, even though evolution could be more or less consistent with the reading of Genesis, most old earth creationists still reject evolution. And they do it for mostly scientific reasons, number one, and they also do it because of the special creation of humans, Adam and Eve, believing in a literal Adam and Eve. So again, most old earth creationists views will accept young earth creationists critique one, but they'll refute critiques two and three. The primary old earth view that does not reject evolution is Collins's non-literal view, and he calls this view biologos. And I want to start with his view because he's in the minority. So I'm going to read a long quote here from the language of God that explains where Collins gets his idea of a non-literal Adam and Eve, of, of viewing this section uh, figuratively. He says, in the first place, the biblical texts themselves seem to suggest that there were other humans present at the same time that Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. Otherwise, where did Cain's wife, mentioned only after he left Eden to live in the land of Nod, Genesis 4, 16 and 17, come from? Some biblical literalists insist that the wives of Cain and Seth must have been their own sisters, but that is both in serious conflict with subsequent prohibitions against incest 
and incompatible with the straightforward reading of the text. The real dilemma for the believer comes down to whether Genesis 2 is describing a special act of miraculous creation that applied to a historical couple, making them biologically different from all other creatures that had walked the earth, or whether this is a poetic and powerful allegory of God's plan for the entrance of the spiritual nature, the soul, and the moral law into humanity. And that's Francis Collins' Language of God. That whole quote is from page 207. So what Francis is saying here, what Dr. Collins is saying, is that there are little bits and pieces in the Genesis account where he's pointing to and saying, look, other humans were there or else there was incest. And then he's saying that overarchingly there is this allegory. And for him, the whole point is that Adam and Eve, even though they weren't literal people, it's, it's a metaphor for how God took these humans and he turned them into morally responsible people that could understand and follow his commands. Okay, so he's thinking that there's a population of what we would call pre-human humans, and eventually they get to the point, they evolve to a point where now they can, their brains are developed, that God can finally, boom, connect with them, and he can have a relationship with them, and that Adam and Eve is just a metaphor for that process. So he doesn't hold to a special creation of Adam and Eve. I think that there are some interesting considerations here. I think we do have to deal with the the incest issue. What I would say as in, in response to, to Dr. Collins is that the prohibitions against incest came later in history because I believe that over time humans, because of the fall, have seen somewhat of a decay in their nature over time physically. That's why, for example, we can I think we can believe that the lifespans in the Genesis account are accurate, that people live to 900 years old, and now we don't live to 900 years old. And so as the bloodline over time has gotten weaker and weaker, you could say, or, or genetically we have degenerated to some degree, I think at some point incest does become a problem. I don't think it necessarily has to be a problem with the earliest humans. So I think that's one response to what Colin says about that. And then the other question we have to ask ourselves is this question about Adam, which I think, like I said, is the focal point of the evolution genesis debate. Now, to go through these views again, just very briefly, just to provide an, an overview here, again, day, age, and evolution. Uh, you look at Hugh Ross, you look at Gerald Schroeder, you look at all these different day, age advocates. They're all going to reject evolution. But if we think about how the theory works, again, if each day is a much longer period of time, if you've got billions of years in day one, billions of years in day two, and so on and so forth, there's no reason that evolution couldn't be the mechanism where God works things out from a biblical perspective. Again, their objections, most of day-age advocates reject evolution on scientific grounds. And then the added benefit of having a literal Adam and Eve. So again, from the, text, from the text of Genesis here, the main sticking point is, what do we do with Adam and Eve? That's, that's where day-age advocates say, we don't have to hold on to evolution. We, we believe in the special creation of, of humanity. Gap theory, I think there are two points of discontinuity between the generally accepted scientific view of evolution and the gap view of, of Genesis 1. Uh, again, evolution could, I think, mostly work with, with the gap understanding. If God created the heavens and the earth in verse 1, and then in verse 2, he's starting to reconstitute things about six or 10 or 20,000 years ago, then 
There's no reason to think that evolution couldn't have happened in that gap time frame, that 13 billion years or whatever we want to call it. And so, again, evolution from a scriptural perspective, there's nothing in the scripture that says, hey, it couldn't work. And then with gap, the idea is that you have a complete reconstitution of life, possibly on the earth, depending on your specific gap understanding. And so God would just essentially be rebooting the life that maybe evolved in the fossil record or something like that. But the idea that there was a catastrophic event, most modern scientists would say that that's not true, that there was not a major catastrophic event uh, six or 10 or 20,000 years ago. And again, the other sticking point is going to be the origin of humanity, the special creation of Adam and Eve. Before we transition to sort of the wrapping this up, I wanted to talk about a, a particular sticking point that some creationists have brought up about evolution in the text, because there is this phrase that occurs several times. In the King James, it was after its kind. In the ESV, it's according to its kind. And so I just wanted to talk briefly about, about this issue, because depending on our understanding of this phrase, people have made some arguments against evolution based on this phrase. So in Genesis 1, there are several times when this phrase comes up. It talks about Genesis 1, 11, and 12, vegetation according to its kind. In verse 21, it's the sea creatures and the birds. And then in 126, it's the beasts of the earth. So I want to just give one example of this. In Genesis 1, verse 21, it says, So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So as we can see in this text, the idea of a kind seems to be a loose biological grouping. Uh, the Greek word in the Septuagint here is the word genos, which is where we get genus, which is a modern term in the scientific hierarchy, how we classify animals. And so if we just read what Genesis 121 says, it says that they're going to reproduce after their, according to their kinds. And winged birds are going to do the same thing according to its kind. And the kinds that are in the waters are different than the kinds that are in the air. Those are two different kinds of animals. And so, again, this seems to be a loose biological grouping. I don't want to press too hard on the idea of a genus because, again, that's not what they would have understood necessarily about this text. They weren't worried, I don't think, about classifying animals into phyla and families and all the different layers of classification we get in modern biology. But I think what is interesting is, is that from a scientific perspective, we still see this. Species can only procreate within a genus. And then often, even if you have two different species in the same genus that can procreate, often their offspring cannot procreate. So, for example, if you take a, a, a horse and you mate that horse with a donkey, you get a mule. So those are different species, and you can see that that procreation occurs within the genus, but then mules are sterile. They can't procreate. And so we still see that according to its kind is true today. Animals reproduce within their distinct genuses. So the question we have to ask of the text now is, does according to its kind mean that animals will always stay inside that kind. Evolution also suggests that animals can only procreate within a genus. In fact, that's how they scientifically defined a genus, is what kind of animals can procreate together and have offspring. 
I believe Genesis 1 is talking about procreation, not that things that are according to their kind have to always stay in those buckets. I think that's forcing something into the text that's not there. And so I would say that there's no difficulty here between understanding the animals reproduce after their own kind in Genesis 1 and the idea of a genus in modern biology. I think those two things can fit together just fine. We're talking about procreation. We're not talking that, that in other words, Genesis 1 doesn't say, so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters form according to their kinds and always according to their kinds and never changing outside of their kinds. You see what I'm saying? That's adding to the text of Genesis 1. So I think we're okay there. So to recap, Genesis 1 and evolution, where does the text disagree with evolution according to each of these views? Young earth creationists will say, all over the place. Here in Genesis, here in Mark, here all over the place, we're going to have problems with evolution. Day age will say, just in the origin of humanity. Just in the origin of humanity. And the rest of their argument is going to be scientific. With gap theory, again, you've got the origin of humans. You've got uh, the need to reconstitute life a finite period of time ago, 6, 10, 20,000 years ago. Those are the two sticking points. So what does that say about Genesis 1? It says that evolution is mostly compatible with Genesis 1 from a textual perspective. And that the main sticking point is what we believe about Adam. So I want to close with that. Questions that we want to consider as we examine the options. And I'm not saying that any of these are a slam dunk one way or the other. Uh, but I do think it's interesting to ask the question, why does human life and civilization seem to advance suddenly approximately 10,000 years ago? I mean, this is something that we can see in the historical and scientific record. All of a sudden you've got written language. All of a sudden you've got cities. Uh, there's a lot of other developments that get made with scientific processes and technology about this time. So why does this happen approximately 10,000 years ago? Evolution, I don't know if it's the best way to explain that. What about the genetic evidence that we saw presented by Francis Collins? How would we sort of respond to some of that? And I just have a couple of comments here. Even Collins admits that an efficient creator could resolve much of the genetic evidence. You know, mice and humans, chimpanzees and humans, having similar genomic features and functions. An efficient creator could account for that. We see this in design of like cars, for example. Ford uses a lot of the same materials in all, all their different cars. So if you have an efficient design process, maybe that works to resolve some of the evidence. Now, why would you have functioning parts in some animals and non-functioning, same thing, non-functioning in humans? Well, we can't go back in a time machine and look at Adam's genome. Maybe it was functioning back when Adam was around. Uh, in other words, mutations over the past 6,000 years could explain that non-functioning gene evidence. Um, so we can still believe, I think, in a little Adam and Eve and say there's some interesting genetic evidence that we can, we can still explain it, I think. So at the end of the day, does the Bible preclude evolution? I think not necessarily. I think in my judgment, the big issue that we have to think about is origin of humanity. What do you believe about Adam? Do you believe that he literally existed, Adam and Eve? If you do, you're not going to hold the evolution, at least as it pertains to that, that special creation of humans event. If you're okay with saying that Adam never existed and that Eve never existed, and that's just a story to explain how God was able to 
unite the moral law and a new kind of soul thing with humanity that had been evolving over time, that there was a larger population of people, if you're okay with that, then you can absolutely hold to evolution. And that's what people who are Christians, who are theistic evolutionists, that's what they believe. That's what Francis Collins believes. And, and my comment on all of that is just to say that none of that, to me, affects salvation, and none of it has to affect the way that we get together in community. I can absolutely be in community with someone who thinks that we evolved and that Adam and Eve didn't exist. I don't, that's not a big enough issue for me to say, hey, we can't have fellowship together. We can't come you know, worship God together. That's my recommendations on this. And here is a view of the tree of life. And again, the question is, is Adam and Eve a unique letter at the bottom here? That's what special creation is, that we start the tree of life for humans down here at the bottom. God, boom, he created humans right there 6,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago, whatever you want to think about all of that. Or are humans way down the branch of one of these branches way up there? And when you look at it from the tree of life perspective, it looks like a big deal. <laughs> it looks like a big difference. But I'm just saying from a Christian fellowship perspective, I don't think that it has to be a big difference. As for my specific view as of right now, I believe in the special creation of Adam and Eve. That's where I am right now. So I, I do, at the end of the day, uh, reject evolution. And we'll see a little bit more about why I do in the next session. Well, that brings this episode to a close. What did you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 470, Biblical Objections to Evolution. Leave your feedback there. Speaking of which, in our last episode together, episode 469 called What is Evolution?, Chris wrote in saying, Not long ago, my brother accused me of only believing in what our pastor told us. This all transpired when my wife and I were trying to share our gospel with him. I took it to heart and started digging into what and why I believe. I turned my Christian life upside down. Here we go again with evolution. After listening to the podcast, I find again that what I believe is based upon the common Christian understanding that has been indoctrinated in me. Looking forward to the next podcast in the series so I can make up my own mind based on scripture and science. Well, Chris, that's kind of the whole point of Barlow's approach in this class is to lay all the cards on the table. So often, because of the way science and scripture have been dealt with in the past and how they have become, in a sense, even political footballs uh, tossed back and forth, there's so many emotions that we have that we don't even take the time to see the other side. And the simple fact of the matter is, there are Christians who believe in evolution. I'm not one of them. I've always found evolution to be a rather implausible dogma, I guess would be the word for it, a belief that everyone is absolutely certain about, but that they can't offer good evidence for. But at the same time, I have to also admit that I haven't done much research on evolution in the last number of years, and uh, maybe there's some better evidence. Uh, I know that what I was taught in school was honestly laughable with the peppered moths that were contrived and the falsified fetuses and the whole, the whole uh, idea of embryonic recapitulation, which was disproved, and Lamarck's idea of animals stretching to reach food, and then growing their necks longer as a result of it. I mean, really, 
laughable, quote unquote, proof for the theory in the late 20th century when I was in school. You know, so maybe they've come a long way. Maybe there is some better evidence now. And uh, I think we owe it to ourselves to either be humble and say, I don't believe in this idea, but other well-intentioned, educated people do. And I don't have the time to look into it. It's not my field. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to cut them some slack and say, look, what really matters is the gospel. That's the center of the whole Bible, the salvation aspect of scripture. And then what, what matters secondarily to the gospel itself is the Bible itself, which is really the foundation for all of our beliefs and practices. And then how you think about science is really a tertiary issue. It's, it's not a primary issue. But we are going to continue on with evolution a little bit more. Next time, our teacher, Will, is going to explore some of the scientific problems. And then Will and I are going to have a nice conversation with Sam Tiedemann, who is a Christian evolutionist and who has a lot of knowledge in biology. And we are going to ask him these questions, and we're going to hear what he has to say. And we're not going to ask him these questions in an antagonistic way to defeat him and make him look stupid. We're going to ask him to genuinely have dialogue over these issues because, look, you may end up turning around in the age to come, in the time of the kingdom of God, and you may turn around and see somebody who believed in evolution in eternal life. And guess what? Maybe they were wrong about evolution. Maybe you were wrong about evolution, but you might both be there in the age to come. So I I think there are issues and it's worth talking about, but this whole trigger-happy idea of just blowing the other side out of the water and calling them stupid either for not believing in evolution or for believing in evolution is just not helpful. It's not really a godly way to exercise humility or love, and it certainly isn't effective in persuasion. So that's kind of the goal here is to understand the different science issues from different perspectives and then having thought about them in a rational and non-emotional way and to line them up against scripture itself to see which one fits best. And so that's really the exercise we're going through here. And I realize that's difficult, but I think it's a worthwhile exercise. And at least it'll help you understand others better. Now, please keep in mind, we're not talking about atheists here. We're not talking about atheistic evolution. We're talking about evolutionists that also believe in God. So they, a lot of the issues that the atheists would have with undirected natural processes, theistic evolutionists does not have. And we're going to see how that all works out in subsequent episodes. Well, everybody, thanks for listening to the end here. We'll catch you next week. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that on our website, restitutio.org. We'll see you next time, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.